Our sermon text this morning is Psalm 72, which is printed for you on the back of your order of worship, if you'd like to read along with it there. Psalm 72, like many of the Psalms, is a petitionary prayer, an intercessory prayer. It's a prayer that asks God of something. But the subject of this petitionary prayer, Psalm 72, is striking. It's a psalm that's likely written by Solomon, or perhaps it's about Solomon, or for Solomon, written by David, and given to the people of Israel. It teaches them to pray that God would grant them a king, a king who would reign forever, always, with righteousness and justice, and a king that would reign not only over Israel, but the whole earth would be brought under the reign of this good king, of this royal and divine son. In other words, this is a prayer that would not be fulfilled by David or by Solomon, although there are ways in which their reigns had aspects of fulfillment. It would be fulfilled only fully and completely by our Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, it continues to be fulfilled, I would say, even this day. This is a Christian prayer. It is a prayer about our Lord Jesus Christ, and it is given to us to pray today. With that context in mind, I invite you now, friends, to listen to God's holy and inerrant word. This word of God, friends, it is more precious than gold. It is the most valuable thing in your life. It is sweeter than honey, sweeter even than the drippings of the honeycomb. Listen to it now. Psalm 72 of Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings 
nations fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls. The poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy. And saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually. And blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land and on the tops of the mountains. May it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David the son of Jesse, are ended. Thus far, the reading of God's word, it is absolutely true. And it is given to you because your Father in heaven loves you, friend. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all the holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us now by your spirit to hear this portion of your word and to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it, that we might even more embrace and hold fast to the hope of everlasting life which you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. As I mentioned a few moments ago, this psalm, Psalm 72, is about praying for and hoping for a righteous, eternal King. But before we jump into the psalm itself, I want to spend a few minutes reviewing what the scriptures teach us about Israel's expectations for a king. Where does this psalm come from? And the way in which Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection and ascension fits into that expectation, that narrative, and takes up that story of the long prophesied and hoped for king. The beginning of the story of Israel's hope for a king starts actually not with Saul or David, but much further back at the beginning of the story of Israel itself. You see, when Abraham, the patriarch of Israel, was 99 years old, his wife Sarah is still childless at this point. It takes place in Genesis 17, this story. God comes and he speaks to Abraham and he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. 
And then later in the same chapter, God said of Sarah, I will bless her. Moreover, he said to Abraham, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations, kings of people, kings of peoples rather, shall come from her. You see, right back at the beginning of the story of Israel was the prophecy of a king that would come from Abraham and Sarah at that point, childless in their old age. Then, centuries later in Deuteronomy 17, that story of the king that would come is picked up in the story of Moses. As the law comes to Israel through Moses and in Deuteronomy as Moses gives Israel his last will and testament, he instructs Israel, telling them that there would be a time after they entered the promised land that the Lord would give them a king, but that the king God intended for his people would be a king, not just any king, but a king who knew the word of God, the law of God, and would abide by that law. In other words, Moses instructed Israel that the promised king that Israel was to hope for was a righteous king. You see, it was no use having all these good and just laws that God had given Israel unless there was a king who would lead the people in righteousness and justice by following and making sure others followed the law of God. And so Moses told them this really distinctive thing that their king must do when he sat on his throne. He said, when your king sits on the throne of his kingdom, this is written in Deuteronomy like hundreds of years before they would have a king. He said, when your king sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, meaning all the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he might learn to fear Yahweh, his God, by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. I mean, do you see what the king has to do there? He has to write out in his own hand a copy of, of the first five books of the Bible, and then read it all the days of his life that he might not forget what his calling was, to obey the law of God and to lead others in doing so as well. This is what Israel was to hope for in a king, a king of righteousness and justice, but she went many years without it, sadly. During the period of Judges, Israel lacked a strong, righteous leader. And this reality, if you read the book of Judges, has dire consequences because the nation falls again and again into a vicious cycle of idolatry, violence, and chaos. In fact, the book of Judges ends in disaster, and it concludes with these ominous words. The writer says, in those days there was no king in Israel. And so what happened? The narrator says, and so everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Without a king, Israel was lost like a sheep without a shepherd and did what was right in each man's own 
eyes. Then in 1 Samuel, perhaps out of desperation, certainly with impatience, Israel demands a king in chapter 10 of that book, which the Lord tells Samuel means that they are now rejecting him. You see, the problem isn't that Israel wanted a king. God had given them, actually, that expectation and hope. The problem is in that chapter in 1 Samuel, they are demanding a king who would be like, as they say, the kings of the nations around them. We want a king like those nations, like the Philistines and the Amalekites and the others. Someone who would be strong and impressive and lead us in battle, they say. And so God, in his wisdom and providence, gave Israel what she asked for. He gave them a king named Saul, who was tall and strong and mighty. But Saul, needless to say, did not write out a book of the law in his own hand and did not read it all the days of the rest of his life. And this was terrible for Israel. After suffering decades under Saul's corrupt and violent reign, the Lord then in his grace and mercy gave Israel a much better king than they had asked for initially. He raised up David and gave him the kingdom of Israel. And it was with David that something important happens because with David the Lord makes a covenant about a king to come. He says, one of your sons, David, will inherit an eternal kingdom. This takes place in 2 Samuel 7. The Lord says to David, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, Solomon, David's son, initially appeared as though he might be a candidate for the fulfillment of this promise. And certainly if you read those early chapters in 1 Kings, Israel thrives under Solomon's rule for some period of time. They experience a golden age of prosperity and peace unlike anything they had known before or since. But then Solomon falls also, even as his father David did, into corruption and sin. And he goes further than David because he falls into idolatry. And his sin lays the foundation for the division of the kingdom and paves the way for all the flawed and imperfect and often just plain evil kings of Israel and Judah that would follow after him. And then, of course, Israel and Judah are destroyed and taken into exile. And then that's where the line of kings ends. Even after the return to Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the temple, there are no more kings. The promise is made to Israel through Abraham and Moses and David about a righteous king who would reign forever seem now to have come to an end. For 600 years, this is the case. But then the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and he tells her that she will have a son. And in his words to her, we see the promises of God being fulfilled, being renewed. Even the words of Psalm 72 coming to fulfillment. Because this is what Gabriel tells Mary. 
He says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you will call his name Jesus. And he will be great, the angel says, and will be called the Son of the Most High, that is the Son of God. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. That story is going to be picked up again. That promise in 2 Samuel 17. That good word that Moses gave in Leviticus 17. That promise that comes from Genesis to Abraham and Sarah. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. You see, Jesus, the angel is saying, will be the promised king. He is the one whom Israel has longed for. He is the one, the angel says, whom Psalm 72 spoke about. He would be the fulfillment of God's covenant with David. But how would Jesus do this? What would he do to fulfill these promises? One of the things as you read Psalm 72 that leaps out of you is that Israel is instructed not just to pray for a powerful king or a successful king, but a king who is righteous, a king who adheres to the law of God. And this righteousness will be exemplified by his vigorous defense of the poor and needy against their oppressors. Why the poor and needy? Because when there is laws that are not followed, just laws that are not followed, it is the poor and needy who suffer because they are less powerful, less strong. And so the the treatment of the poor and needy by the king is the test of his righteousness. As Psalm 72.4 proclaims, May he defend the cause of the poor of the people and give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. This isn't just spiritual language, friends. This is like talking about the poor and the needy and those who oppress them and what the king will do in response to that oppression. In verses 12 to 14, the psalm goes on to say, For he that is this righteous king delivers the needy when the needy call, when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life. And precious is, his blood, is their blood, rather, in his sight. Now, the fascinating thing is that when you read the Gospels and you read about the ministry of Jesus, this kind of affection and care for the poor and needy is all over the place. You can't miss it. And that's not arbitrary, right? It's because he's acting like the king. This is what the king was meant to do. Jesus' first miracle in Mark is the healing of a leper who no one cared about. In Luke, Jesus begins his ministry by announcing in the synagogue of Nazareth that in his person, Isaiah 61 has been fulfilled, which speaks, among other things, of proclaiming the good news to the poor and setting at liberty those who are oppressed. The oppressors of the poor in the day of Jesus, to be clear, are not the Romans. Not if you read the Gospels. That's not where the focus is. 
No, the oppressors are the wicked leaders of Israel, those false shepherds of Ezekiel 34 who are eating the sheep instead of protecting them. The scribes and Pharisees and elders and chief priests, these are the men against whom Jesus battles. Again and again, Jesus confronts these men. And why? Because they get under his skin, because he doesn't like you know, the way they dress. No, because of their oppression of the poor, of the people under their care. He tells the leaders of Israel publicly, on numerous occasions, lots of things that they found odious, including that they were lovers of money, that they devoured the houses of widows, that they weighed down the common people with unbearable burdens, that they were outwardly pious, but their hearts were full of wickedness and greed. And he promised them on multiple occasions that the judgment of God was about to come. Jesus said these things to these powerful men many times. It is one of his favorite topics if you read the Gospels. In our Gospel reading this morning, we heard in the story of Luke 13 about how Jesus redeemed a woman from oppression by healing her on the Sabbath day. And it's an important demonstration of his heart toward the poor and needy. You see, for the leader of the synagogue, although this woman had suffered for 18 years with a disabling spirit, unable to stand up straight, hunched over. Still, for the leader of the synagogue, this woman didn't matter at all. She was just an imposition, a threat to his false interpretation of the law. He was wrong, by the way, about the law of Moses. But for Jesus, this woman, poor though she might be, ostracized on the margins, she was precious in his sight, as Psalm 72 says. And so he heals her, even though he knows it would make powerful men hate him even more. Friends, if you read the Gospels closely, you'll discover that it was actually this, Jesus' unrelenting advocacy and care for the poor and needy against their oppressors. That was one of the most basic reasons for the conspiracy that resulted in his murder. He would not stop doing it. He would not stop advocating for them. He would not stop battling against their oppressors. And as Jesus was publicly tortured to death because of the way he had offended the ruling elite, he died, remember, with a sign that hung over him. And it said this, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And that sign was right. Even though Jesus never sat on a throne in Jerusalem during his 33 years, he had been a righteous king in a manner that was qualitatively different from David or Solomon or any of the others who had gone before him. And particularly in this way, in the way that Psalm 72 speaks of, he had defended the cause of the poor of the people. He had taken pity on the weak and the needy. He had redeemed their lives from oppression and violence because their blood was precious to him.
But if Jesus' story had ended here and his crucifixion, he could not have been the king prophesied about in Psalm 72. He could not be the promised fulfillment of God's covenant with David because he would have failed to conform to the announcement made by Gabriel to his virgin mother. He would not have lived forever as king over his people and over the world. And this is so important for us to see, beloved. Jesus did not only become incarnate and die on the cross in order to be a sacrificial victim for our sins. Yes, he did it for that reason. But he was also made man that he might die and then live forever. That he might be crowned as the long-promised king. The king who would not only rule Israel, but actually the whole world, all of it, with God's righteousness and God's justice in all the ways that we so desperately need. And so it is in his resurrection that this takes place. It is in his resurrection that Jesus fully inherits the throne of his father David. And this is why Paul announces the gospel of God, the good news of God at the very beginning of his epistle to the Romans, to Rome where Caesar lives, in words that have nothing to do with how we get to heaven now, but rather with a focus entirely on the kingship of Jesus over all the nations, and that this has been attested to by his resurrection from the dead. Listen again to those initial words in Romans 1. This is how that amazing letter starts. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel, that is the good news of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. How? By his resurrection from the dead, Paul says. And who is it? Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom, Paul says, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience, the submission of faith for the sake of his name. Among whom? Among the Israelites? No, among all the nations, Paul says, including you in Rome, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. You see, beloved, as Paul writes, it is in the resurrection that we discover the blessedly good news that Jesus' actions in the Gospels weren't just about starting a minor reform movement that would last for a few years in ancient Judea. No, this Jesus who was crucified, Paul says, intends now in his resurrection to take dominion over the world and bring everyone, every man and woman and child, under his righteous and just rule. And this is profoundly good news for the world. Because for thousands of years, in every system of government, in every empire and nation, the poor and needy and weak and helpless have always known what? Oppression and violence. This is the way of the human race. If you need proof of that, even in our own nation, go and look 
at the statistics for abortion rates among the poor versus the rich. Go and investigate which portion of the population it is that is enticed to squander their money by government-sponsored and government-protected and government-profiting off of gambling. Which portion of the population? Go and discern over the last 60 years which income class it is whose families and communities have been ruined and devastated by the legalization of no-fault divorce. Look at the numbers. It is the poor and the needy who are oppressed. And there are many other examples as well. But the good news, beloved, is that none of this will last. No, the days of oppression and injustice are coming to an end because now in Jesus Christ there is a risen King who lives forever and will not die and cannot be defeated. A risen King who is full of the righteousness and the justice of God. A risen King who has sent His apostles out with this commission. He said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. Because the sign of discipleship is obedience to the law of this king. And so friends, with the psalmist, let's pray for this. Let's pray for this king. Let's ask, even as he has taught us, for his kingdom to come. Let's pray with the psalmist and say to God, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May that take place. May the desert tribes bow down before Jesus and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before Jesus Christ. All nations serve him. Because when Jesus reigns, beloved, as Psalm 72 tells us, it is like rain that falls on the mown grass. It is a good thing to be brought into subjection to the reign of Jesus Christ. His reign is like showers that water the earth. It is through the exercise of Jesus' authority that people will blossom in the cities like the grass of the fields, and the mountains will produce grain like the cedars of Lebanon. Think about that metaphor for a second. Where does grain grow normally? Not on mountaintops, right? He says, through the rain of Jesus, grain will grow on the tops of mountains, and they will be like the cedars of Lebanon. That's what the stalks of grain will be like. And why? Because this king will judge the people with righteousness and the poor with justice. It is this king who will defend the cause of the poor of the people and give deliverance to the children of the needy. It is this Jesus, our Lord, who will crush the oppressor. Beloved, this is what we long for. This is what the scriptures wants us to long for. 
This is the story that we've been caught up in. A man once said these words. He said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Interestingly, when Martin Luther King popularized those words in the 1960s, he was actually quoting the 19th century Unitarian minister Theodore Parker, who was very much a heretic and a false teacher. But in any case, that statement is true. The arc of the moral universe does bend toward justice. It does. But to be clear, that statement isn't true because human beings are basically decent people who can be persuaded to turn away from violence and corruption by appealing to their better natures. No, the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice, is headed towards justice for this reason and this reason alone, because God in his kindness has given the human race something that we don't in any way deserve. He has given us his son to be our king. And even though we, in our violence and corruption, crucified him, the only truly good king we had ever had, still God's son, rose from the dead and is even now continuing to bring his kingdom of justice and righteousness to all the world. And he cannot be stopped. He cannot be stopped. Beloved, this is the good news of the ever-increasing, ever-growing eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we say with the psalmist, may his name endure forever. May the fame of Jesus continue as long as the sun. We say may all people be blessed in Jesus Christ and all nations call him blessed. We say, blessed be his glorious name, the name of Jesus forever. And may the whole earth be filled with his glory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, indeed, we need this King. We need this deliverance. And so we ask, Father, that you would be merciful, that you would be kind, that you would indeed bring about the full, the fullness of the kingdom of your Son. And we say, come soon, Lord Jesus. Amen.